square peg. We are a venture capital firm in Sydney, Melbourne, Tel Aviv and Singapore on a mission to empower exceptional founders. We are an early stage technology investor across the fintech, enterprise, healthcare consumer and emerging spaces. We have over $1.6 billion in assets under management across multiple funds and have invested in category-defining companies including Fiverr, Canva, Stashaway, Wallex, Credivo, and Tomorrow. And although my voice is a little crackly today, today is a special episode because it coincides with the announcement of a big capital round for hypergrowth fintech startup, Zella. Co-founders Ben and Dom and their brilliant team just raised another $50 million from Spark Capital, the investors behind Twitter, Oculus, Slack, Discord, Glossier, Medium, Tumblr, and my personal comms secret weapon and annoying YouTube advertiser, Grammarly. The additional $50 million from Spark Capital means that the Zella team have raised over $80 million in the last 12 months, which made them the most highly valued pre-launch startup in the country. More importantly, the team are using this cash to redefine business banking and they launched to huge fanfare, with over 1,500 businesses switching in the first month. Today's conversation is a brilliant one. We'll cover Ben's experience leading Square in Australia and the 31 interviews he nailed to get the job, how he pioneered contact payments back in 2008 and why building fintech companies takes a very special team. Let's talk Zella. So what are the problems that we can really address with a, with a new company? It's like, okay, can we do payments for growing businesses better than anyone else? Can we do it at a lower cost base, more efficiently, better onboarding, more innovation, so it's not just a payment being routed? We think we can. The second thing, once they take that sale, businesses take that sale, where are they going to put their money? They still have to go to a bank. And I'd experienced this multiple times, setting up business bank accounts where it takes weeks and still start of 2020 it took six weeks to set up a bank account it's like this is insane this is this cannot be the way it's being set up so yeah we can onboard a business set up a bank account way better than is happening at the moment that's two parts of it money in money sitting in the business but then they have to get it out they have to disperse it they have to start paying their bills and their invoices and their staff and that's that cash flow issue two-thirds of businesses get killed by because they're not putting their money out so the premise of Zella, although we didn't have a name at the time, was like, can we solve those problems? And no one else is doing it this way. So we thought, yeah, let's, let's give it a go. Probably naively. We have a joke around here about saying, how hard can it be? And it turns out the answer is really, really, really hard. We'll cover Zella and their product in depth, but for now we're going to go back to the beginning. Before Ben co-founded Zella, before he launched Square in APAC, before his career in finance and consulting, all the way back to before he even existed because I want to tell you about a love story. My parents, my, my dad's actually German. Uh, he met my mum over in Germany at a Munich beer hall, as you do, back in the 60s, I think. They knew each other for two weeks and then got engaged without speaking each other's language. So I found some connection there, which was pretty cool. And then migrated out on a boat to Australia to set up life in Melbourne. They only spoke German when they didn't want us to understand what they were saying. So I know a lot of profanities in German, but I don't know much about it. Yeah, my mum was a medical secretary and worked in some of the early IVF doctors. So pretty interesting work she did there. But my dad was an electrical engineer. We grew up in a pretty small town in Germany and then went off to night school and learnt electrical engineering, which was a pretty good move. And worked for some companies like Siemens and Hewlett Packard. And we migrated out to Australia, continued working with those sort of companies. But then he faced a little bit, I guess, back then was early days of sort of the Australian racist community where he had a pretty strong German accent. And at, at that point, obviously, European migrant migrants were the dominant migrants to the country. And he kind of faced a little bit of obstacles in the work environment for that. And one day had enough and said, that's it, I'm going. Uh, I can't stand this anymore in terms of that racial profiling and, and mocking of his accent and things like that. And went to start his own own company uh, called PTL. And yeah, it was a really impressive story, actually. He, uh, he'd worked on a mainframe system with, I think, both of those companies historically, which used to, basically this thing that's probably about six metres by two metres that can now probably be replaced with an app or something. But yeah, he always used to do the electrical engineering on that for these companies. And then when he left, he got a call after doing some consulting work from Yulon Power Station. They said, we're getting rid of this mainframe system. We don't need it anymore. 
we don't know what it does, we don't know what to do with it, do you want it? So he, he came out with his trailer and basically bit by bit hauled this back to our place. And it sat in our in our back room where we played table tennis for a couple of years and it disappeared. And you know, I never asked him about his career as you're a naive kid, you really do. Uh, and then later on in life, I heard that he basically turned this into a switch, which um, was used to connect a lot of the branches for the National Australia Bank. So yeah, the good news is that he did really well out of that sort of turn of events, which was negative at the start. Ben worked at NAB in the end too, and he fondly recalls times where colleagues would recognise his quite distinct last name and how so often they'd wind up telling Ben how his dad's switch, this mismatched machine that he'd built in his garage from spare parts on eBay, had kept the bank running. And Ben would laugh, knowing how truly bizarre that that is true. But the benefits of this strange turn of events, from a beer hall in Germany to the burbs in Australia, was that Ben grew up with a pretty wide worldview and was encouraged to experience it all. My parents never said, you have to follow a traditional path. They always used to say, just do something that you believe in and that you find interesting. And it was really good philosophy. So um, I was lucky enough to go to Melbourne High School. So And also there the way... At that school, being a selective school, the philosophy was pretty much, we're not going to push you to work hard. You have to learn how to do it yourself. And even to the point where you used to be able to wag, I don't know if that's a term anymore, but, you know, skip school and you'd really get in trouble for it. It was like, you know, it's, it's only going to damage yourself. So you kind of, through Melbourne High, you, you realise that, you, you know, your destiny and what you're going to end up doing is up to you. But we're also surrounded by incredibly smart people. So the bar was pretty high. So it just it was a second nature to work quite hard. But yeah, I never pushed into those traditional ways. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And that was a theme that continued throughout my career for a while. But I, I always loved building stuff and I always loved design. Ben is smart. He also just exudes focus and ambition. And I remember meeting him for the first time just after we invested, which now that it was pre-COVID, feels like a decade ago. And I remember thinking as I sat down with Ben and Dom, his co-founder, wow, these guys are serious. In a way that felt eerily similar to when I first met the Athena co-founders, Nathan and Michael. And it seems like this trait, this super sharp focus and ambition, has been a consistent theme throughout his life. Yeah, I was pretty impatient with my career. I was, looking back, I was probably pretty annoying to most managers because I just wanted to do hard things and I wanted to push the boundaries of what I was doing. So I never lasted in jobs for too long. I ended up moving on to something else. I realized quickly BAU jobs, which was just you know steering forward, not changing much, was never going to be for me. So I did hop around a bit. Uh, and then pretty quickly I landed in management consulting and that definitely worked for me because it was, you know, short periods working at complete diverse backgrounds and, and different environments and different companies. And what I realized then, you develop this really strong skill about it be dropped into a company or an industry which you have no idea about. And then, you know, you start talking to people and the whole idea is to glean as much information as you can to the point where within minutes or hours you can ask the relevant questions and then you can move on to having a robust conversation and then within a day, if not a week, you're you're offering advice in an industry you nothing about the previous day or week. So that skill set is really like a muscle and you start doing it in different industries, you start becoming really good at it. So I, I love that part of it. I mean, I worked on random stuff like I remember the the Defence Force was in Canberra was outsourcing the maintenance of Black Hawk derivative helicopters, which I clearly had no idea about. And yeah, I had to work out whether they should outsource the maintenance of that or not. I remember one time when I was in Canberra and we were running a workshop, so the top brass, if you call them that, at the you know the Air Force, Navy and Army were all gathered together to talk about this deep subject matter expertise uh, in the room. Uh, and the partner of the firm, who I won't name, got up to run the, the full day workshop. I think in hindsight, he probably had a panic attack or something, so I don't blame him, but he just came off the stage straight away and said, I can't do this, you've got to do it. And I was like this young consultant that knew nothing about Black Hawk helicopters. So yeah, I walked up in front of this whole room of these military brass and proceeded to run a whole day workshop. And you know, that was ridiculously hard and you know, scary and frightening and everything. But again, I realised that skill set of like, just jump into something, you know, you work it out. There'll be a way through. People are pretty forgiving. So I yeah, did consulting for many years and then sort of realized I actually didn't know what I was talking about and it was a great skill set I'd learned but I, I didn't know the subject matter 
that I should know to really be qualified to be giving that advice. So I thought I've got to go into industry. Ben's first industry job was in aviation, working with Bruce Buchanan, whose name should sound familiar as he's the founder and CEO at Rocked, another one of our portfolio companies and who I think currently holds the title for most popular episode of this podcast. So that may be worth a listen. And Ben's role at Jetstar under Bruce Buchanan and Qantas's now CEO, Alan Joyce, was really expansive. Looking at how they extend the brand beyond aviation into things like payments or loyalty or in-flight entertainment, but aviation turned out not to be Ben's thing, and he found himself right back where his dad started, at NAB, in the perfect spot. I was lucky I probably found the only job that I would have liked there, and it was actually in a broader part of Andrew Thorburn's retail banking team, and there was two of us that used to sort of just look at ideas or M&A or partnerships that came through to him and work out whether there was something good to do there or not. And one of the things that came across my desk was, you know, payments and, you know, this prospect of doing, you know, EMV or chip cards on in Australia and then prospect of using that microprocessor on a card to do things like contactless, which back then wasn't a thing. And then beyond that, there was this sort of speculative talk about doing mobile payments, so what we commonly call Apple Pay now. So I, for some reason, got really hooked on that. I don't really know why, but I'm glad because payments is obviously now a thing that's been good for me in terms of a career path. But yeah, I, I went to the bank and said, hey, we should really do this EMV thing. We should really get into contactless. And they said, no, we, we're not interested in doing that. And then for some reason, I said, hey, if I raise the money to do it, can we do it? And I don't think they knew what that question was. But for some reason, my manager at the time said yes. So I went to Visa and MasterCard and said to them, hey, I'm going to run one of the world's first mobile payments pilots. This is about 2008, so just a year after the iPhone had come out, but we didn't use the iPhone, obviously. But And so, yeah, raised a few million dollars from Visa, who was keen to put their brand to an innovative pilot like that, and then managed to pull that off. So we ended up making, you know, taking phones and making payments on contactless readers around Docklands area. And then with the leftover few million dollars, I basically put that towards buying cards and contactless readers for the bank. And once the bank starts doing something, it doesn't stop. And a lot of people in the bank got behind it from that point and deployed it. And yeah, got into contactless technology, which took me to Visa, where I ran innovation across South APAC in that region. Okay. So on first listen, contactless payments don't sound super earth shattering to you, a person not living in 2008 and who probably uses contactless payments multiple times a day. But actually, it was a really significant development for Ben. And dare I say it, the world. Ben recognised that the way businesses take payments was going to change. And he decided to figure out how to do that beautifully. But convincing a slow, often insular industry that something big was coming down the pipe wasn't exactly easy. When I was at NAB, payments wasn't really a thing of interest. Card payments was just a minor part and it was probably used more for just those larger transactions where you didn't have the required cash in your wallet. So, But it wasn't really seen as this is going to be the way everyone makes payments and electronic payments was just a, a complementary thing to cash. So... Uh, it was quite funny in the early days of trying to deploy contactless technology. I used to hear every single day, what's the point of tapping card on a reader? And well, what problem is it solving? I hate that question. And constantly being asked that, you know, it's, it, no one needs it. it, it it's, it's not worth deploying. Why would, it, why would a merchant do it? Why would a cardholder do it? And people just missed the fact that it doesn't have to be solving this massive macro problem, although it inherently was. It just has to be a something that really piques people's interest. And so when contactless started, it was a real a, a solution which mightn't have worked. And Australia ended up being the biggest market for contactless. But in the early days, that was the jury was out. Like there was I remember early days at Visa, I got a call from executives in Visa in the US saying we're shutting down Visa Paywave. Like we're not going to deploy it anymore because in America contactless isn't a thing. And you know, we got the premise wrong. And I remember begging them for, you know, that whole night saying, You're crazy, it's really taking off here. But yeah, in Australia, contactless and EMV technology managed to get the deployment quite right, which was great in terms of, you know, there was enough cardholders that were starting to tap and you saw this thing where it was the first, I guess I could call them early adopters, when they first tapped their card, they felt proud and they felt special and they felt new and innovative because you were in a public space and people were looking at you and what is this new thing? As a side note, can you just imagine tapping your card now and feeling elated? like you'd achieved something. 
This seems wild to me because I spend most of the first few seconds after tapping my card embarrassed that another flat white is about to appear in my entertainment graph on my banking app. But anyway, I digress. Back to Ben and his merchants, who were also pumped. And also merchants felt the same thing where they had this brand new technology out there. But what Australia got right in that space is the balance between cardholders and merchants offering contactless. If you have too many people with cards and not enough merchants, they'll stop trying to use it. And in too many merchants with readers and not enough cards, then the merchants will remove the what was a separate contactless reader. But in Australia, as a market, we got it right where it was an equal distribution on both fronts. And then it just had that hyper growth in terms of once people started using it, people started noticing it was in their wallets and started tapping and then it became a cool thing for some reason. And, you know, those few seconds that were shaved off that payment experience suddenly became a thing. Uh, And then you kind of shifted away from it, is this secure, to I can't do without it. I hate going to a merchant that doesn't offer contactless. And then it suddenly went stratospheric in terms of its growth rate. But payments infrastructure is pretty bloody complicated, even if it is old. Yeah, I mean, on, I mean payment infrastructure hasn't actually changed too much. So, it, it, And if anyone actually understands it fully, they're probably lying because it's extremely complicated. But in essence, you have two sides of the equation, issuers, which issue the plastics or what used to be plastics, uh, and you have acquirers, which acquire the transaction for merchants. And basically the networks like Visa and MasterCard sit in the middle of that and they know how to route a transaction from a particular card to that issuing bank, get a message and send it back to the merchant to approve or decline it. And then they know how to settle the money at the back end. And, and, and that hasn't changed dramatically. And that infrastructure is pretty solid. It's starting to get faster. It's more robust, more trustworthy. So when, in a company, when I worked at a company like, like Visa, I was more interested, not so much on the infrastructure side, but on the consumer experience and the merchant experience. I liked that change and how it was rapidly evolving and how hard it was to deploy in market. Over time, Ben realised that blue chip companies weren't for him. Despite the benefits of working with those great established companies, he didn't love the speed in which they moved and he craved a bigger challenge. So he decided to make the life-changing move that all entrepreneurs recognise, quitting the security of a nine-to-five in order to brave the unknown. It was Ben's courage to make this first step that led to the most crucial turning points in his career. Yeah, at one point, I was just at a, once contactless had reached a certain point, I thought I've got to make a change. And, you know, at that point, your career, you're quite well paid. So it's a big decision. I just had a young family and the worst thing I could do was quit that job. But it had to for various reasons. And uh, yeah, I went from well paid to zero. And yeah, I had that amazing experience a lot of entrepreneurs have, which is where you literally get up one Monday morning and go, okay, what are we going to do now? But the one problem that I knew I wanted to solve is that I had to build a lot of prototypes, application prototypes within blue chip environments, and I could never get them done. It was too hard. You know, apps cost millions of dollars to make. And the first thing you have to do is build a prototype and before you get funded or sponsored. So I thought I'd build a business around that. So yeah, for, for me, Kinetic was not so much about the business that it could have become, but it was more around me scratching that ish of starting my own business and taking a massive risk with my career and my life. And so, and, and I realized I loved it. Like it was, that was the ultimate challenge that where you're hundred percent responsible for it. So I just learned one key lesson out of that, that, you know, a starting a business is really hard. It's reflective. It's difficult at many times, but uh, if you put your mind to it and you work hard, you can, you can get, you can succeed or at least keep it moving forward. And it was at this point just one year into his company building Kinetic, that his phone rang. But yeah, I got a not too cryptic phone call from a headhunter in San Francisco who was saying there's, I can't tell you who it is, but there's this guy in San Francisco who runs a social media company and a payments business and would love to have a chat. And yeah, obviously it was pretty easy to pick that was square. So for me at the time, that was, they they were only starting to emerge on, you know, in, in the kind of fintech community. And they're obviously becoming quite established in the US, but I loved what they were doing. I loved that they were doing something different and they were, you know, taking a hardware approach as well. Square is the $100 billion startup that facilitates payments for small businesses. And at the time, in 2014, they were looking for their first hire in the APAC region. And at first, Ben was like, nah, I'm running my own startup. I'm feeling pretty inspired by my own adventure. But he took the call and thought... Oh, go on then. Then they flew me over to San Francisco and then I realised that this is actually a pretty unique opportunity to join an amazing business. I think I had, I think it was 31 interviews for that job. So as I joked, they either really weren't sure about me or 
They really wanted to get it right. And I'd like to think it was the latter. And a lot of them were just rapid fire, like quite quick. And I was literally for probably about 20 of them in this tiny, like two meter by two meter interview room. And so I just had this cycle of people coming through. And in hindsight, it was all the senior executives at, at Square at the time. And, and in hindsight, they're actually like really amazing San Francisco people like Sarah Fryer and Francois Bruguer and, and, and the very last interview was with Jack. And so at which point I was running out of oxygen and I was just, my head was spinning. But it was, it was a really fun interview process because it was something I was super passionate about in innovation in payment. So it was, it was a second language to me. So I didn't find the interview process hard in any way. But yeah, it was, it was pretty full on. So to be able to get the job at the end obviously made it all worthwhile. I don't know how I would have felt if I didn't. Ben did get the job. He nailed all 31 out of 31 interviews, even the last one with Jack Dorsey, that scraggly, bearded, business magnate, billionaire, technology, entrepreneur, genius, who co-founded Square and also, just for good measure, Twitter. In general, Jack's a very, very unique leader. And I'd come through a more of a traditional path of my career. Uh, so it was like, for me, CEOs weren't people you spoke to and they were just figureheads and they'd come into the room or they'd talk to your business and they'd be very CEO-y and they'd pretend to be a certain way. And I think a lot of them in hindsight, they were probably pretending to be a certain type of manager as opposed to them generally being that way. And at your first meeting, Jack, it was just totally different. It was like like you were talking to someone you're going to work with every day or you work with and he was very grounded and down to earth, easy to talk to. There wasn't an air of managerial prowess or anything like that so but in general I found that Jack had a few things and having gone over to San Francisco many many times during my time there I learned that he had this amazing knack of storytelling and being being able to be able to deliver a narrative to the business and the people that work there so um, I don't think and he probably professed this he, he he's not really a public person and not someone that is outgoing in that way but you put him in front of the business and the people that work there. And I, the first time I saw him speak at a, like what we called Town Hall, which is a Friday stand-up, I remember looking around at the couple hundred people there and every single person was just 100% clued into and listening intently to what he was saying. I've, I've never seen someone hold a room like that. So for me, it was really interesting to see that you know there, there is about that narrative and that storytelling and making sure people uh, believe in what you're doing at a, at a high level. But on the flip side, he doesn't get involved in the micro much. He trusts people to grow businesses. Back then he hired really well, so he trusted them to build the business. So he wouldn't be the person in the room telling you what to do or disagreeing with you. He'd, he'd honestly rarely talk until he found something that he felt passionate about or he thought wasn't going the right direction. He self-corrected the room. So, But no, he was always just a totally different type of leader and people talk about how could he run two big companies it's his style and he you know he doesn't micromanage and he allow, allows people to do their job so it is feasible for him to run two businesses despite the conjecture Ben worked for Square for the best part of six years, over which time the company makeup changed dramatically. And while he still saw potential, it ultimately frustrated him that this once super innovative startup was becoming a slow-moving big beast. And at that time, the, the, it was in that hyper-growth phase where it was still a private company. It, its survival wasn't guaranteed. There was still a lot of naysayers, but it was showing all the right signs of really exponential growth. But the C-level executives, I didn't call them that, but those C-level executives like Sarah Fryer and Francois Bruguer and these types of people, they're superstars. Like they're growth-minded, they're really ambitious, they don't want to sit back, they're, they support you to make sure if you're doing something, do it fast, get it going, build the business. So that was exactly the type of executives you needed at a company like Square at that point. And not saying this is anything wrong with Square because it's still a great company, but fast forward six years, those sort of people, few and far between. It's more around a, hey, we've got a rocket ship here, it's growing, let's make sure we keep keep the keep the course. There were definitely outliers to that. Obviously, as you see with, with Cash App, so you had these sort of little parts within uh, Square which were just still on that trajectory and still had that growth mindset and that, you know, I hate the word disruption, but that disruptor mindset to actually get out there. But the rest of the business was a little bit becoming like a big business, and that's really not where I want to be. But I loved it. I loved the team, and I built them up. I hired everyone that was in the Australian market. I loved what we were doing, but the business was changing. It just was. And and for me, the, they also made executive decisions, which meant some of my team had to report to other people in San Francisco. And for me, 
what we'd done with the Australian market was show that we were the fastest growing market they'd ever had, even faster than the US at a similar time. And it was really growing fast. So there wasn't a problem to, to fix. But yeah, there was decisions being made that didn't make sense to me and meant that I couldn't do the job as, as I hoped to do. And my job wouldn't have been the same. So it was like, this is a really good time to do something different. And I had this nagging thing at the back of my head that Square wasn't solving the bigger problem. Square was doing really well for small micro mobile businesses, but it was missing a few opportunities in my book. And I thought one was going more broadly with international. I thought it was a great opportunity to do that. And it was just too slow and executing on that that path. I thought it should have gone deeper into financial services, like way deeper, quicker, and been known for deeper financial services, and also push up market into larger businesses quicker. And you see Square is doing some of that stuff and trying to do some of that stuff, but it wasn't at the pace that was natural for me and that I liked. So I thought, listen, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it with people that I love being around and, and with a real growth mindset and really take on a macro challenge. So with that in mind, when I departed Square, we sort of took a step back and said, well, what else, what else needs to be solved here beyond just the payments thing for micro businesses? And this is really the part of the story where we take Ben, the hotshot consultant turned Square exec, and he becomes Ben, the second time startup founder changing business banking for the better. And in classic startup style, how it all came together is a bit of a wild one. Yeah, so when this idea started gathering a little bit of pace, I just kept mulling over it thinking it's probably too hard to do. Like you need too many things to go right. No one's taking it on. The incumbents are just so big. Like, and they're so hard to be able to grab market share from them. But, you know, there's a lot of things that have to go right. And I think the first, it was all about taking one step at a time and just keep that momentum going. So I think the, one of the first things that, which is a little bit embarrassing to say, but one of the first things that started it off was I'd had a couple of drinks on a Friday night when trying to work out what to do next and whether this idea could get going. And then I decided to contact some manufacturers that I knew in China who built terminals and payment things. And for some reason, I gave them the spec of what I wanted. And can you build this for me? Can you build me a sample? And yeah, I woke up the next day and went, okay, I think I just ordered a terminal last night. And then the terminal was shipped out a few weeks later. And when that landed, I was like, wow, actually, I do know the people that can build something that we need to, to go. And so then I took that terminal and met up with, with Dom and, and said, yeah, idea we keep talking about, I think it might be possible. I think the first thing might be possible. And yeah, Dom, Dominic Yap, who worked with me at Square, was an instrumental part of the success that we had in getting Square off the ground. I personally love working with him. One of those rare people that, you know, I'd worked with him for five or six years and we'd never had a scrap. Like we'd disagree on things, but we'd always work through problems. We went through the trenches together in terms of, the challenges we had in building Square up and building a team. And uh, he's just, he complemented, I guess, some of my skill sets really well, where, you know, a really whip smart guy, a real, more of a generalist in a positive way, like had a real breadth of understanding of the industry. So yeah, when I was trying to, thinking about this, who to start this business with, it was an absolute no brainer that, that Don was the first person I sort of mulled it over with. And he too was trying to work out what his next move was. He just left Square and we were kind of thinking all traditional jobs, but when I started pitching the idea to him and talking more about it, and then I showed him this random sample terminal that I had manufactured and made it sound better than it was, which we didn't end up using, by the way. But yeah, I think one day, I think his wife, Eris, just said to him, why don't you just go and build a bank? And he kind of joked to me. And then I said, well, that's what I'm talking about. Why don't we do this? And then, yeah, he's, he loves a challenge too. So he yeah, pretty quickly said, let's, let's 100%, I'm in, let's go. I took this random terminal and met up with David Conn who's another one of our founding members. And he was actually around when I was doing the mobile payment pilot at NAB. And he worked on the terminal side up for a vendor. And we had a lot of challenges getting that off the ground. And there was always this guy that hung around and said, oh, I can probably help with that. I can probably help with that. And just like a can-do attitude, super relaxed guy, but amazingly smart. So he's the first person I, after Dom I went out a chat to. Caught up with him for coffee, had this random terminal and said, hey, I'm thinking about building this bank and this is what we're going to do. And I'd never done a pitch or sort of put it together in a concise way and literally I'd finished this random pitch and and, uh, he said I'm in I was like what like this is weird like what do you mean you're in like great but he said yeah no I've been working at big corporations too long and I've always wanted to do something that's hard and different he wanted to go straight away so he was in so was the three of us we started meeting up a little bit to work out how we can take the next step we were going to self-fund and just get it going and build some sort of MVP prototype or whatever but then, yeah, actually another portfolio company of Square Peg, Athena Home Loan. So Mike Starkey actually lives next door to my brother. And uh, 
So my sister-in-law was saying, oh, there's this guy next door and, you know, he's starting this home loans business and, you know, should have a chat to, to chat to you because you're obviously building, trying to build a business. And yeah, a testament to him, I said, hey, do you want to catch up? And he was very, very free with his time. And anyone that knows Mike, he's a fantastic guy. Yeah, and just started sort of saying pitch to him and talking about it and talking about how we're going to self-fund. And he said, well, I think you're crazy. Go and raise money for this. This is a great idea. So I was like, yeah, I don't know. And they said, well, anyway, there's this company, Square Peg Capital, Paul Bassett, go and have a chat to him. And yeah, I think it was like the first week of the new year of 2020 when we just literally started the business. I went and caught up uh, with Paul and in his office and maybe my memory is becoming a little bit rose-colored glasses, but literally I think within five minutes and I didn't know Paul well, I'd met once before, but he was sort of leaning in, like literally, and he was asking these questions which were relevant and pertinent and he was asking the right questions. I was thinking, wow, this guy actually knows a little bit about the opportunity here. And yeah, I, I know he didn't offer us money in that meeting, but I left there going, I don't know if this is the way all VCs work, but I'm pretty sure they're going to invest in this company we haven't started yet. So that kind of went, okay, so raising money is a thing. Met with Alex from Apex Capital. It's the same experience. Hotel lobby. This is what I'm thinking of doing. Haven't done anything yet. Same thing. Like pretty much, yeah, we're in. So suddenly it was like, oh, hang on. We're just suddenly raising money. And before we knew it, we had $6.3 million raised within a few weeks of even bringing the team together. And was like, okay, there's something here. Like we've got a team that's obviously resonating. We've got an opportunity in the market, which is clear. Let's just keep taking that next step, keep the next step. So with that sort of money, we had enough to start scaling. And then we caught up with this guy we'd been hearing about called Alfred and in Sydney and same thing, like spoke to him for about 10 minutes and he's like, I'm in. I was like, why are these people so keen? But there must be something in it. So we had a team of four and we just started building the business from there. And yeah, that was the start of it all. This was all right at the beginning of 2020. Ben had his team and he had his money, but we can't really talk about anything else until you get all the details on what precisely Zella is doing. We saw when business started to grow and become bigger, they become real more specific in what they need, but they also need better banking services, better financial services. So all these businesses using these services didn't have to go back to a bank and say, well, I need an account to put my money in, and then they get dragged into using banks' products and what have you. So the opportunity that as we saw it was like, okay, those businesses are a little bit bigger than just getting off the ground on micro mobile, but not as big as the enterprise businesses thinking, think $20 million turnover type thing and really widely franchised business. But in the middle, in Australia, that's the majority of businesses. That's 95% of businesses. There's between 1.5 to 2 million of these businesses and hundreds of thousands growing every year. And the products they use in business banking are really rudimentary. So the terminals are clunky. They're old school terminals. They don't do anything but route a number around the system. The onboarding is slow. The pricing is incredibly hard to understand. They get no benefit for growing or showing loyalty at all. Suddenly there's these new payment trends that are emerging like buy now, pay later or different payment methods like QR codes or Chinese-based methods. And none of these things can fit into the model. It's just about this payment. So can we make a better payment experience and a better solution uh, we thought we could, and we thought, well, we know people need accounts, and we know people need business cards, so let's put them all together in one solution uh, and make one single onboarding. So you don't have to go around to these different providers and cobble together a best-in-class. You have one, and you can find it with a company like Zella. So, yeah, it was more around that middle market we thought was a great opportunity for a company like Zella to, to, to really prosper. But when you look at that market, there's heaps of neobanks around the world popping up, but no one was really addressing it this way. So in Australia, it's still the big four. The big four banks just dominate everything. Their solutions are old school. They're not really improving much. They're still disjointed in the different products you need to bring together. And around the world, pretty much every country is the same. It's just there's little piecemeal things happening. Most fintechs around the world are sort of chipping off a little nice niche on the edges or looking at lending or looking at just the card side of Neobank. And we thought, let's go in the middle. Let's take advantage of the opportunity in the middle to build a main financial financial institution alternative to the big banks anywhere. So for us, it's an Australian problem we want to solve first, but it resonates in many, many markets around the world. So a key part of our growth trajectory is to, you know, really get it right in Australia for Australian businesses, but then take an Australian business global as well. With the Zeller Foundation's envision for retail firmly in place, Ben set about building a brilliant team. And his focus was on ensuring that, right from the outset, the team was focused on building an enduring business that worked for their customers. So you're trying to build trust. 
and businesses don't have the tolerance and they, they shouldn't the tolerance for things that are going to be breaking or flimsy or not where they should be so yeah we have the extra challenge where we have to make sure our initial product set is robust but also meeting an exact market opportunity and really hit the ground running from when we launch to make sure that we can scale from that so it was a different proposition to build in the team but the only way that's going to happen is to build an amazing team with amazing people. So with the four of us starting, that was perfect, where we had two tech leads that were deep sub- subject matter experts in the technical side of it. We had Dom and myself who were very strong on the, on the business side, the risk, compliance, customer success, growth, those sorts of things. So we had a really good balance of a founding team, but there's no way you can build what is effectively going to become a business bank with four people. So... A, we need a significant capital because there's a lot of effort that goes in it, but you need to build uh, a really, really strong team. And we didn't have time. So there's this, all right, who's in our network? Who do we know? Who do we trust? But you had to get every hire right. There's no opportunity to just, oh, they'll be okay. They'll learn. It's like, no, you have to get people who are hungry. You have to get people who go, this is ridiculously hard. And you're not coming to work at a company, a high growth company like Zeller or any sort of financial services startup to say, I'm going to cruise or I'm just going to have fun in this fintech world. It's really, really hard. So if you're wired that way, and if you're like, I love challenges, I love working with smart people, I love being pushed, I love making sure that I'm growing as well, those sort of people you want. And they can come from any stages in their career. They can be super junior and just hitting this glass ceiling, I guess like I used to a few years ago now, and did, couldn't get the opportunities I wanted. Or you could be, which is more like me, is like the back end of, not back end of your career, but yeah, toward, towards the mid to back where you're going, you know, there must be more to my career than working in blue chips and just sitting in a seat that someone else sat before. Or you can be in the middle and you're just on top of your game. You're just someone who said, I, like, I know this, I know how to do it. I want the autonomy now, you know, let me at it. You get people from one of those categories. And the amazing thing is as a leader or a manager or a CEO, your job is less about motivating them and getting the best out of the things. It's more around stepping back and creating an environment where they can be their best and making sure when stuff goes wrong, you're there for them. Make sure when stuff's not going the way it is, you can have a hard conversation and go, we've got to do better here. We've got to push harder. We've got to make sure we get this done. So if you've got people who are that hungry, but also have a level of maturity as well to go, you know, I'm not going to get offended by something going wrong. I'm not going to get offended if we need to push harder. I'm not going to get offended by working with someone else. I don't care about you know corner office titles, pay, all this sort of stuff. I just want to build something that's amazing. And for some reason, and actually, well, I think I know why, but we just started getting these people coming towards us who wanted that challenge. And I think my thesis on this is pretty simple that talent attracts talent. So when engineers met with Dave and Alfred, they were like, ah, okay, I thought I was a pretty good engineer, but these guys are next level and they're thinking about the way technology comes together in a way that I've never seen and there's no tech debt and we can actually build infrastructure that we can be proud of. And then so real talent goes, yeah, this is, I want to be involved here because I'm going to get challenged. And same on the business side where people would come in and sort of, they're backing themselves, they're confident, they're not arrogant, but they're confident. But then suddenly they're meeting with people like Dom who's saying, yeah, but we're going to do things differently. And by the way, we're building a business bank and it's going to be launched in 12 months. Are you in? So you just tend to get these types of people who are the right types for what we needed and it just scaled really quickly. And while Zella and the early team was getting busy, so too was COVID-19. We started in COVID. We were born into COVID. This business has known nothing but COVID time. So when we look back, there's no way of going, oh, we know we got hit by COVID and something changed. It was like, that's just the way we were. So interviews happened within minutes and days and hiring was really quickly, quick because you could just jump on a, a Zoom or a Hangout fundraising was enormously quick where we you know the first round was done in 10 days and the second round was done in five days and it gets faster and faster but that was the positive of COVID and I won't celebrate COVID at all because it was catastrophic but we were literally stuck in our houses in particularly Victoria with nothing else but to do but to build a business and so you were focused you suddenly felt this energizing spirit from people around you who were doing amazing things and growing this business from nothing into this thing that suddenly became Zella. So it was, I just don't think we could have got done what we did and what we got done without COVID, which is really weird and inverse, but it was an amazing time for us and we loved it. And I look at the team now, we've got 75 people and absolute pinch me moment. Like how did, where do we find these people? Like they're amazing. But yeah, it was a half majority of the, was them finding us. So 
yeah, we're really lucky and really privileged and we could not have launched this business in 14 months without the talent we have. It's been amazing. To be able to build the business that we did in 14 months was you know, amazing and testament to the team. But we had this really strange thing where coming from a project management background, I've spent a lot of years of trying to Gantt chart things out and work out when we're going to launch. But when you're launching something this big and uh, complex, it's often superfluous to spend so much time doing that level of planning because there's a lot of things that pop up that you don't know going to pop up and you'd be constantly re-baselining. So I took a bit of a different approach and probably threw out all my project and program management skills and just said, all right, we're going to set a date and we're just going to run at it. All right, and if we miss it, so be it. But if we run on it and we get close and looking like it's going to stick, we're going to stick to it and we're just going to push ahead. And history shows and my experience shows that when people think there's a hard date or know there's a hard date, they, they do amazing things like, and they achieve amazing things where if it's flexible and it can move, it can just drag out. So yeah, the whole team did an amazing job to run at it. We did shift the date once, but once we locked in on May the 4th, which was not supposed to be a Star Wars reference, but ended up being that... The team just did nothing short of incredible work, incredible work. And yeah, it was long hours, particularly the team were pushing themselves like I don't think they've ever pushed themselves, but they were surrounded by teams that were supporting them to do it. And there was no weak link of people just sitting back watching other people work hard. Everyone was pushing really hard. So having that date was a really, really strong thing. And we just said, let's just try not to shift it. Let's keep going towards it. So when you get towards it, the last few weeks are obviously the probably the worst where a lot of stuff is trying to come together at the same time systems are integrating you're starting to test things starting to go live with certain things pushing into production so it was an amazingly like these little wins happening constantly but there's a weird dynamic where the launch always seemed like the finishing line so you're running towards this finishing line and doing amazing things but then when you get really close to this finishing line you suddenly realize that's the starting line and you're like oh wow so there was a bit of a challenge from a management perspective that a lot of us had was like how do we keep this momentum and this excitement and this amazing energy within the teams going, but then kind of pivot the little bit of bad news that, you know what, May the 4th is actually where we start actually working really hard. But, but by then you have a team who are, so, who are so bored into it and love what they're doing. COVID highlighted the need for further payment and banking innovation to help local businesses thrive through difficult times. It was through the support and success of the first businesses in Australia to use Zella that really pushed the team to excel. Yeah, it's exciting. Like when we saw the first terminals in market and you know the first customer rang the, first, the call centre for the first time or the first billboard or the first ad that went up or the first terminal kit that was sent out. It's such a rewarding moment. You don't get time to stop and reflect too much on it. And that's something we're actually noticing now is that we, we have to actually stop more and reflect. But so rewarding for the team and yeah, like when, you know, obviously Slack is an amazing tool that we all use these days, just messages flying around about, hey, this mer- who knows this merchant? Did anyone talk to this merchant? How come they're using our solution? And it's like, wow, they're just self-onboarding. They're doing it themselves. They're finding us themselves and, and coming in. So immensely rewarding for the whole team. And I, like I know there is nothing there is nothing better than, you know, you go out to a restaurant one night or you go out to a bar or wherever and you see a Zella terminal and someone banking with Zella and you're like, that is so special. Like it is, it's, it, yeah, you can't stop but get an amazingly positive feeling from that. And I know the team loved seeing all the time and, and we're only starting. So yeah, it happens every time. And we also had in the first week some big wins, which was, you know, you're building this proposition. You've got investors saying, this is amazing op- opportunity to build this business. You have got it right. You've got the right team and you've got the right funding. You've got the team there saying, this is the right thing. And then you're all in the same room saying, this is the right thing. But when you're at that starting line, which is the launch, there's that little voice in all their heads going, have we got this right? Like, is this is this going to work? It wasn't a doubt, but it's just that one little voice. And so, you know, in the first week, Officeworks, where all our, our kits are sold from, as well as direct, but Officeworks is an amazing partner for us. Yeah, you know, in the first week, they just said, right, we're doubling orders. Like, we're any projections you had were doubling so suddenly we had this inventory management system where to go wow we're going to go and manufacture more and put more kits together but then there was one of those moments where you just go hey the our thesis businesses are seeing this too and then you're also seeing businesses like we thought a lot of businesses that joined zella would be you know growing businesses or even business bigger businesses starting but over 80 percent are switching businesses so now our whole premise of banking is not looking after them now in the Australian market is validated. And so that feeling of 
this validation about all these businesses saying, I need something better. I want to be treated better. I want better pricing. I want to be onboarded better. When I scale, I want better products and tools. Suddenly it was all coming true. And then you have these little things, which are anecdotal, but super fun, where uh, we all sit near the customer success team so we can hear it. And this, we have an amazing customer success team, super talented. But that is your front line. That is where you're hearing good and bad. And sometimes it's not always good, but we had this weird thing where we had every day, like multi, I'd say 10 to 12 times a day, you'd have a bank customer ringing up saying, yeah, I've got a problem with my Commonwealth Bank terminal. Can you help me? And our customer success team would be like, we're Zella, so we're not Commonwealth Bank. And they go, yeah, I know, but I can't speak to anyone at the bank and I, I can't get this fixed and there's still a problem here. And so then quickly we're like, actually, you know what? We can't technically help them, but let's help them as much as we can. So I was like, yeah, have you tried this? Have you spoken to this? And, you know, try this. And, and if it doesn't work out, where's Zella? And they're like, wow, this is amazing. And then we get, we give them great offers to join us and they jump on board. And so then we reflect later with these businesses going, so glad I called you. I'm so glad you helped me out. And yeah, just those little difference things were just like, I'm so glad we can help these businesses because COVID was crap. It was terrible. Businesses struggled. And when they're trying to get back on their feet or they're trying to grow now that the economy's bouncing back and to have incumbents not treat them the way they should or having products which are just antiquated or not servicing their needs or their cash flow is being stopped by late deposits and things. And to be able to help them in a little way is just enormously rewarding. I know the team loves it every day as well. With Zella going from strength to strength in a pandemic-rattled world, Ben continued to seek finance for the company, finally deciding to work with the brilliant Spark Capital. When the first lockdown ended, we're like, oh, COVID's almost over. Let's announce our, our raise. So we announced it and we got some really positive media coverage, which was fantastic. Needless to say, we went back into lockdown 2.0 the very next week, I think. But when we did announce it, there was it was quite coincidental where we got immediately got this incredible amount of inbound interest from massive VCs around the world, mostly in the US. But one in particular, so it was Lee Fixel at Edition. He was actually starting his own firm. He'd been with Tiger for many years and but invested in some of the most amazing companies to ever be founded. So had a real eye for it, had a really unique way of investing as well, where you know the hero of the equation wasn't himself. And he was like, I'm just helping these businesses get going. Very low profile as well. But he was Googling, because he was an early investor in Square, he was Googling what particular squares had been at Square for a long time and had since left to start their own business. What are they doing now? And there's this really weird but pretty cool people are calling a square mafia or a square alumni that's growing around the world at the moment with companies like, you know, Step, DoorDash, Cockroach Labs, Common Networks, Open Door, Fair, these sort of companies. They're suddenly growing these sort of mid and early stage people that worked at Square and then since left. So he was Googling and my name came up and he saw that we were had, had just raised and he was the first person to reach out. And literally within five days, he offered us a $25 million term sheet, which you know, I, I didn't think it was possible, but the, the, the reason he could do that was the same thing, I think, with our other investors is that they knew the space and they knew the opportunity. So they could really quickly get to the poignant questions to say, well, no, we know there's an opportunity and no one's addressing it, but are you the people to do it? So then the questions were about the team and about the strategy and about the product set and then the long-term picture as well. So when an investor has that mindset and that pre-existing knowledge of the industry or the opportunity, the conversation can be really quick. It's a very binary conversation. Are these people right or not? Yeah, and testament to him, like we closed that round and our amazing existing investors in Apex and Squarepeg lent in again and took full pro rata, which was amazing. So that round was really easy. And at this point, we're thinking fundraising is pretty easy, but I know it's not. I know we're really privileged and really lucky to do that. But yeah, then we just went on and kept building and we kept building for the 12 months. And then at the end of 12 months, I approached Paul, Paul Bassett and Lee Fixel and said, hey, when you invested in us, you were confident we could build a brand in market and grow a product in market because a lot of our team that had grown could do that, but you didn't know if we could build a product from scratch and build an engineering capability. We've now done that and we've actually built these, this product set. We're ready to launch. What do you want us to do here? We've got two options. One, we can focus on growing this business and just scaling it for the next year or two, or we can start building the next phase of our products and we can actually get going on how getting deeper into financial services for business. And both of them said, no, seen enough, go start building. So with that, we need to raise more capital. We weren't doing a round at all, but I was also concurrently having a lot of inbound interest. 
We were written up in the New York Times for some random reason. And so we got a heap of US interest. And I said to Invesla, there's so many coming in. We're about to launch this business. Is this the right time to do the raise? And we said, all right, let's just see. It's two weeks. Let's talk to VCs that are inquiring and see if there's a match. And yeah, I spoke to 35, I think, US VCs. Very intense fortnight in my life. But fun, because you're talking about what something you're passionate about. Yeah, at the end of it, Spark Capital was just the clear standout. Like the that, that they were amazing. Where it's very similar to you know Paul and Lee, where they had Jeremy and James in their team who got the space, got the opportunity. They moved super fast. They knew what we not wanted to do, why we were doing it, and most importantly, they didn't. A lot of VCs when they look at our business, they go, "What is it today? Like, what have you got now?" And prove to me you're going to be a success within an inch of doubt to so that I know that my money is going to get a return on it. Other VCs like these ones go, all right, I see what you're doing now, but tell me what you're going to do tomorrow. What are you going to become? And how are you going to move into that? And how are you going to keep growing? And, and when we painted that picture, they're the VCs that say, yeah, we believe you can do it. We believe the team's there. We believe the opportunity's there. So yeah, we're absolutely thrilled to have raised another $50 million. So now... It's pretty crazy, but it raised $81 million before we'd even launched, which was amazing. But testament to the team I have around me who are incredible. So yeah, for us, it wasn't success. It wasn't validation. It was just like, we now have the fuel to enact what we want to do. We have, we have the vision of what we want to do, and now we have the capital to do it. So, and it was perfect where we managed to launch and then get that excitement for that, see the early success come in, and now we're just scaling, we're building new products, and yeah, really exciting. The Zella team today announced their latest funding round and we are thrilled to be backing the team again. If you feel that you could contribute to the future of beautiful, better banking, I reckon you pop across to zella.com to check out their open roles. There are plenty and it's clear, at least to me, that this team is on a rip. A big thanks to Ben for this conversation and to Josh and Sarah for their help on content and production for today's episode. We'll see you in two weeks.